You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we make this confession with our lips that you alone are worthy. We confess that we have too readily given our worship and our time and our devotion and our attention to lesser things. And so we ask this morning in your kindness and in your mercy that you would draw your people back to worship you rightly because you alone are worthy of it. We ask you to help us to continue in worship now as we go to your word, not just with song, but with our minds and with our hearts that we'd receive from your word, by your spirit, exactly what you need for us and desire for us to receive, that we might grow, that we might glorify you with our entire lives. Thank you for this time that we have, the privilege it is to gather. Would you encourage your people now? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. It is a joy and a privilege uh, to worship together like we are this morning. I don't know if you see it that way. But let me just frame it out for you. Uh, Last night, while you were sleeping, the Lord is the one who sustained you. You were sleeping, so you weren't consciously keeping your heart beating or your lungs breathing in and out. It was God Himself who did that. And He's given you today and us today an opportunity to gather together for worship, to worship Him through the reading and studying of the Word, to worship Him in our prayers, to worship Him through song. And even as our day continues, as you leave this place in just a few minutes, to worship God in our resting, full of thanksgiving for His goodness, asking for His power to be at work in us as we step back into everything that He's called us to tomorrow and in the week ahead. The week that you and I have no idea how it's going to play out, but yet we trust that He does. So today is a gift for us, and I hope we can see it like that. And so I counted a privilege this morning for us. I counted, excuse me, it's a privilege for me to serve you in this way to open up God's Word. And so we're going to continue our time in worship through the reading and studying of God's Word. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 22 if you've brought your Bible with you. If you do not have one or you need one to follow along, some folks are coming around. We'd love to get you one so you can have one for yourself and, and read along with your own eyes. If you do not have a Bible, please take this with you. We'd love for you to have one. Um, we're going to read, we're going to get all the way to the end of Luke 22 today, which is great because Luke 22 has been 70 some odd verses. It's a long one. We're going to get all the way to the end today. Um, so if you've been looking forward to moving on to Luke 23, we get to do that next week. Um, if you were with us last week, as you're finding your way there to Luke 22, the end of it, last week we read the story of the Apostle Peter and his failure when given the opportunity to align himself with Jesus, when questioned by perfect strangers, Peter denies Jesus three times, and he leaves the scene, he leaves the courtyard just weeping. We contrasted that with Judas, who also failed, but his failure led, led to his death, whereas Peter's failure and weeping actually led to redemption, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. And last week, we looked at the reality of grief 
and sorrow. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. And the difference between mere regret and repentance. This morning, I want to look at another idea, not just grief or sorrow. I want to look this morning briefly at the reality of shame, specifically the joylessness and powerlessness of living underneath shame. Let me say it this way. All of us, as human beings, deal with, the, with feelings of shame. Sometimes we feel shame and it's categorically unfair that we have to endure it, right? Someone hurts us or sins against us, and yet we're the ones who have to live under the, the, the weight, the lingering weight of shame. We were mistreated or falsely accused, and, and that's a shame that we can, can feel and a shame sometimes we feel like we live under. That's reality. On the other side, there are times when we feel a twinge of shame, but part of us feels like we kind of deserve it, right? Like we, we know the thing that we did or the thing that we said, and we kind of feel the, like we talked about last week, we feel the conviction or the grief over that. And we can unfortunately live under that kind of shame as well. And I want to talk about that. I want to pick that apart a little bit as we go today. But, but here's what I hope we see in our text. That fair or unfair, just or unjust, no matter where it comes from, we suffer often under the weight of shame. And the gospel thread I want us to pull on here in Luke 22 is that while we suffer often under the weight of shame, Jesus bears our shame so that you and I can be free. That's the thread I want us to pull on here in our text, that we suffer under the weight of shame, but, but Jesus bears all of our shame so that we can live and be free. So let's read our text together. Like I said, we're going to get to the end of chapter 22 today. We're going to start in verse 63. Luke 22, verses 63 through 71. I'll read it and it'll be on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, against Jesus, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is God's word for us today. Now you could argue that Jesus' suffering had already begun. We read a couple of weeks ago, he labored in prayer in the garden, knowing what was ahead of him, knowing the, the curse of sin that he was going to have to bear. He was suffering under that weight. He suffered because two of his closest companions, both Peter and Judas, betrayed him and denied him. How lonely that must have been. His suffering had already begun, but here begins 
a very different and unique series of suffering that Jesus will endure as He moves toward the cross. And so from this point forward, as we make our way through the rest of Luke to, the, to Easter Sunday, to, through the crucifixion and the resurrection, I, I want us to remember one thing. I want us to put a pin in this idea for the next number of weeks as we're reading through Luke's gospel. And essentially, anytime we open up the Bible and read an account of the gospel, I want us to put a pin in this, that Jesus deserves none of what he's about to receive. Pin that. He deserves none of it, and yet he endures it. I think we need to understand what's happening in our text in light of that reality, that every insult that's hurled at him, every swing of a club or a whip, every step he takes with a heavy cross beam laid across his bloody and bruised back, Jesus deserves not one of them. And yet he endures each insult. He takes each hit. He, he, he receives each false accusation without defense. He takes each nail Why? Because he's doing something. Particularly, he's redeeming for himself a people. Now, we're going to look at this text kind of in two parts. First, what is happening in our part of the text? And the second part is why. What is Jesus enduring and why is he enduring it? And so I'm going to break it up in this way. The what is Jesus is suffering public shame. And the why is he's doing this so that you and I can be free of shame. First, the what. Jesus is suffering shame. There's three ways here, three things that are happening to Jesus that I would argue are shameful. They're evidences of the shame he's enduring. He is mocked, he is beaten, and he is tried unfairly. First, let's look at Jesus is being mocked. Verses 63 and 64 tell us exactly what's happening. Luke just straight up tells us, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Now, we'll talk about the beating here in a moment, but Luke tells us that they mocked Jesus as they beat him. This isn't about justice. This is about humiliation. They bound his hands and they blindfolded him and then they strike him, likely in the face with an open hand. And then they say, okay, if you are a prophet, tell us, which one of us hit you? See, God's promised Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, that was supposed to come and to rescue Israel from all of their oppressors, he was to be a better and final prophet. All throughout their history, God's people had prophets who spoke to them from God to give them God's instruction, to correct them, to tell them, here's what God desires of you. Generation after generation, God sent them prophets, but he was going to send them one final and better prophet who would speak God's final and perfect word to them. And so he sends that prophet in Jesus And instead of receiving him, they mock him. They mock his claim. If you really are a prophet, then tell us, was it it me who hit you or was it this guy? Right? They don't refer to what the miraculous things Jesus has already done. 
They don't refer or reference or call into question his years of public ministry where he has just exemplified over and over again his divine power, his proof of his messiahship. They don't, they don't reference any of that. They just mock him. They don't reason with him. They don't examine him. They mock. It has the feeling of like a, a schoolyard group of bullies, doesn't it? Five or six big guys picking on one guy by himself. That's the sign of a mocker. They provoke, they poke, they prod, they start the fight, they call names. Their goal is humiliation and embarrassment. They mock him. Verse 65, and they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. They're trying to slander him. That's not a word we use very often. To blaspheme is to defame and to slander. They were tearing Jesus down emotionally while they tortured him physically. Jesus was mercilessly mocked. And we'll see more of that as we continue in the weeks ahead. Second, Jesus is beaten. Luke tells us that they put a blindfold on him when they struck him. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 tell us that they spit in his face as they struck him and slapped him. So hands bound, unable to protect himself, Jesus is being punched and slapped and mistreated all before he actually has a chance to stand in front of a court or a judge or anyone and give a defense. Nobody's formally questioned him. He's been given no opportunity to defend himself or make an argument. He's being mistreated by those who are holding him. That's the picture that Luke and the other gospel writers are trying to help us understand. And all of this was in violation of their own law. We have rules for like how you treat prisoners, right? We have like wartime rules, Geneva Convention. We have uh, rules in our own constitution about, you know, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Leviticus chapter 19. Some of you have gotten to Leviticus in your annual Bible reading plan already. Welcome to Leviticus. Leviticus 19 probably through Leviticus now, unless you're behind, here's my encouragement to just keep reading through Leviticus. Leviticus 19 says this. Let me just read a part for you. This is the law of Moses, the law given to Moses to give to the people. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So just like it was unlawful for the priests to pay bribe money to Judas, which they did, Deuteronomy 16, it was unlawful of them to condone the mocking and the beating and the slandering of Jesus. And yet they did. So, so on public display was their contempt for Jesus and ultimately their contempt for God. They slapped and they spit on and they beat Jesus. And in all reality, this would be the, the first and probably the least bloody of the beatings that Jesus would endure over the next few hours. Jesus was brazenly and publicly beaten. Third, the third way Jesus is shamed here, he is tried. And I'm using air quotes around the word tried because it was a sham of a trial. Verse 66, 
Look what it says. When day came. Stop there. That means that everything to this point, we've talked about it before, but just don't forget, everything to this point has been done under the cover of darkness. Right? So when day finally comes, early morning, it's officially the day, then the assembly of elders of the people gathered formally, and they took Jesus to a hearing of sorts before the council, before the the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, is where they took him. Now, according to Jewish law, the council was required to meet during the day. There were no trials at night. And so arresting Jesus in the middle of the night allowed them to kind of skirt the issue so they could start a trial right away, and the general public would have no idea. In fact, by the time that a public hearing, which is what the court should have allowed, would have been known to the, to the general population of Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time, the trial would have been over. So, so that's what they decided to do. Not only that, but it was against the law to even have a trial that day because it was a Jewish holy day. So, so here's what's happening. There's, there's multiple of their own sacred laws and rules that they are bending and twisting and flat out breaking just so that they can make this happen. All these things should have prohibited Jesus from even being tried on that day or in this way, but they bent every rule they could so they could just move the process forward. We just want a trial and we want a conviction and we want punishment as soon as possible. And this is what the chief priests asked Jesus in verse 67. Finally, he's standing before a legitimate, air quote, court, and they ask him this, if you're the Christ, tell us, (laughs) are you the Messiah? Listen to Jesus' answer. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. This is not a good faith question. There's no truth seeking here on behalf of the, the court. They're not, they don't really want to get to the bottom of it, and Jesus just calls them out. I could tell you that I'm the Messiah, but you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you if you think I'm the Messiah, you can't answer. It's a lose-lose for you. But he continues. Look at what Jesus says, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Keep reading. We're going to come back to that. Verse 70. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus gives them a direct answer. Are you the son of God? You say that I am. You're essentially trying me for it. So you tell me. And that was enough for them. Again, remember, they're bending all sorts of rules There's like rules for evidence. There's rules for witnesses. They don't care about any of that. They just turn and say, you all heard that, right? You everyone heard what he just said? So we're good? Guilty. That's essentially how they conduct this trial. And they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They blaspheme the true prophet of God, and then they accuse him of blasphemy, of cursing, of slandering the name of God. But Jesus never slanders the name of God. Jesus only blesses the name of God. Now, he was making a claim here. Let's be clear. Jesus was making the claim that he was indeed the Son of the Most High. 
He was equating himself with God as God. And the priests and the, and the scribes just decided, if that's the case, if he is claiming to be the Messiah, then that's blasphemous and he deserves death. Notice they didn't charge Jesus with being a liar. They didn't charge Jesus with being a troublemaker or disturbing the peace. They said, nope, he claims to be the Messiah. He deserves condemnation. And this was just the first of a, of a handful of trials, again, air quotes, that Jesus will have to go through. We'll look at two more next week before uh, the Roman governor Pilate and Herod himself. But right here in this little section of Luke begins Jesus enduring being treated unfairly, accused and treated without justice. Jesus is unjustly tried. So here's the shame Jesus is experiencing right now publicly. He's mocked, he's beaten, and he's tried. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus deserves none of it. And yet he endured. Remember our big idea for the day, Jesus endured shame so that you and I could be free. There's a purpose in this. And that's the second part of our text today. This is the, the thread I, I want us to pull on a little bit as it relates to the application from this passage. Jesus willingly suffers shame for us so we can be free of it. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says this, Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. He is the prophet priest, and king of the church of God. Jesus is the only mediator, the only go-between between a holy God and sinful man. He's the redeemer. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. This is referred to as the, the threefold office of Christ. So go with me here for a second, because here we see Jesus operating in all three of these offices, if you will, as he endures shame in Luke 22. Jesus, the true prophet, is mocked. They, they straight up tell him, prophesy. Tell us who hits you. But none of Jesus' prophetic purposes are threatened. In fact, remember the, the 30 pieces of silver that the priests gave to Judas that received back? They couldn't take it into the treasury? Like, oh no, it's unlawful if we put that in the, in the offering plate. Can't do that. So they think they found a loophole. But we can use it still, and they go and buy a field that they're going to use as a, as a graveyard for strangers. All the while, foolishly, but sovereignly under the hand of God, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy that this is exactly what was going to happen with those 30 pieces of blood money. They cast lots, which we'll see in a few weeks for Jesus' clothes as he's hung on the cross. They decide not to tear his undergarments beautiful piece of woven fabric. They, they decide rather than tear it up, they're going to cast lots for it. And doing so, they fulfill the prophetic words from the Psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 34, fulfilling Jesus' prophetic purposes. And as they pierce his hands and his feet, as they cast judgment on him and kill him, they're fulfilling the prophetic promise that Jesus would be pierced so that our transgressions and sins would be nailed to the cross. Jesus is the true and better prophet, and he's mocked. Jesus also the true and better priest as he's beaten. They spit on him, 
They slap him, and like a compassionate priest, Jesus covers us and endures the beating so that you and I can be healed. They beat him here, and as we keep reading, they'll beat him some more and more and more brutally. They'll strike him now, and they'll continue to strike him. But as they spit on him, as they slap him, as they lash Jesus with a whip, literally making stripes of flesh on his back, they think that is for punishment. And what they do not understand is that their, their striping of Jesus isn't for his punishment, but it is actually for your healing and mine. If the prophet speaks on behalf of God to the people, then the priest speaks on behalf of the people to God. And that's what a good priest does. He covers and heals, heals and pleads for these people that he cares for to God. He endures shame and suffering to cover us. Jesus, the true and better priest, is beaten. And third, Jesus, the true king, is unjustly tried in the courts of men. Remember how I said we'll come back to verse 69? We're going to come back to it right here. I think Jesus is leaning in, if I can say it that way, leaning into who he is as the true and better king. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title he uses for himself more than any other. And it comes, this, this phrase, this idea, Son of Man, is a reference to the depiction of a Son of Man from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Let me just give you a, a picture of the prophet Daniel in the vision he has. Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God, and he describes Yahweh as the ancient of days, seated on his throne, and there's fire, and there are thousands who serve him, and tens of thousands who who are gathered and stand before him. And then Daniel says this, Daniel 7 verse 13, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So here in Luke 22, Jesus is standing before this unjust human court with its arrogant leaders. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this is not the last time that you and I will be standing in a courtroom. But the next time we do, it will be very different. I will be asking the questions and you will be giving the answers. But from now on, Jesus says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus, the true and better king, is enduring an unjust trial. And here's why this is significant. Through the mocking and the beating and the injustice, none of Jesus' prophetic plans are threatened. Not one of them. None of Jesus' priestly care and his intercession for his people is hindered or cut off. 
and none of Jesus' kingly rule is challenged. That's why I think I love what the London Baptist Confession says, that Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. There can be only one. The reason we chose Isaiah 50 as the passage of Scripture to read today, we, we typically choose a, like an Old Testament passage as a, as a reference as we read a new te- or study through a New Testament text, or vice versa. If we're preaching through an Old Testament text, we'll likely look for a, a New Testament reference to help us see the continuity of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 50 is essentially about God's people being unfaithful, but God's servant being faithful. God's servant, in this case, being Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 10, in light of what we just talked about. Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely in his God. Jesus bears ridicule and disgrace, and he knows that his position before the Father as it stands, means that he will not be disgraced. Jesus is undeterred from his purpose. His face is set, as Isaiah says, like flint. He stands guiltless before these false accusations, and he's the mediator between a holy God and a holy man. It's as if Jesus is saying in Isaiah 50, verses 9 and 10, who declares me guilty? Verse 10, and who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Jesus is saying, me, so that as you walk in darkness and you bear and, and feel like you have to live under the weight of darkness where you don't feel like you have any light, if I can couch that in shame language, Jesus is saying, but trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. If he is indeed that mediator, that means Jesus is enduring suffering and shame for us. Jesus endures mocking so that you can be encouraged. Jesus is beaten so that you can be healed. Jesus is tried as guilty, even though he is not guilty, so that you and I can be declared guiltless. This is the the beauty on the backside of repentance that we talked about last week, that we can be free of sin, yes, and we can be free of shame. This is the part I want to I drill down a little bit because part of our takeaway from a text like this is I want to encourage us to not pull our eyes away from the suffering of Christ. Like to be willing to watch it. To be willing to look at Jesus and all of its gruesome reality which we'll continue to do as we move toward the cross. And as we do that, we recognize and take in the reality that Jesus suffers in our place for you and for me. 
Pastor and theologian Lingen Duncan says it like this, we must not have a vague, general understanding of His vicarious suffering. We need to understand specifically every step of the way He suffers in our place, on our behalf, that we might worship Him aright. Vicarious is another word we don't use very often. In our place. Jesus stands in our place as a substitute. Jesus suffers in our place as our substitute. And that's not just gospel 101, if I can say it like that, that Jesus died for our sins. Yes and amen. That is gospel 101. And it is also gospel's PhD program that Jesus suffers in our place for our whole lives at every step. At every step of our lives, Jesus is our substitute, which means today what I want us to take away is that Jesus also takes away and removes our shame. I often talk with people that I'm like walking through kind of a discipleship relationship with, how we look at the cross of Christ. Jesus suffering in our place, how we see the gospel as a Christian throughout our life. Another pastor um, I showed, showed this to me or shared this with me, and he didn't create it. He probably stole it from somewhere else. But I found it very helpful in my own walk with Jesus and as I've shared with others. Here's a diagram. That when we see Jesus, when we see the cross for what it truly is the first time, that we see our sin as the problem, and we see that Christ died for us, that Christ forgives us, that Christ washes us clean. When we see it that way, the gospel is beautiful and the cross is huge. It is massive. We're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I, I'm a sinner and yet here's what is offered to me. So the gospel is beautiful and the cross is, is huge. And as we continue to walk by faith in Jesus, the cross actually gets bigger and the gospel gets more wonderful. So it looks a little bit more like this. Not because we're more sinful than we were. By God's grace, we don't get more sinful. By God's grace, He changes us. That we experience what's called sanctification. That He actually transforms us to look more like Jesus. Right? As the Spirit works transformation in our heart. But the gospel gets more beautiful. The cross gets bigger because we recognize that our sin is deeper than we thought. Our need is greater. So, so we feel grief or we feel conviction or we feel shame, if I can use that word in this way, for our outward sins, but not only those things that we do, we actually start to feel conviction over inward motivations and desires. So it's not just the things that we do that we need to be forgiven for, but now I realize, man, my motivations are sometimes screwed up. I need grace for that too. It's not only that my motivations are screwed up, they come from really disordered desires. So the cross needs to be bigger to also deal with those. And beyond that, my own, like I'm tempted differently and, and my, these things in my heart are disordered. And so the cross needs, do you see what I'm saying? We don't become worse. It's just that we need the cross more. So we realize that Jesus is not only our substitute for the sins that we commit, Jesus is the substitute for the sinners that we are. And so we recognize that our need is far greater than we thought, but that our Savior is even better than we first thought He was. And so the end goal of Christ's work on our behalf is to make us free 
free from sin and free from temptation and free from shame. And here's why this is important, because I think shame has a purpose sometimes that can work for our good, right? Like when we do bad things, we can feel shame. And there's a sense in which sinful actions are shameful, right? We see things on the news where someone does something terrible and we're like, that's bad. You should feel bad for murdering that person. I'm just using murder because it's, you know, murder is an easy one. It's a quote for a coffee mug. Pastor Jake, murder is an easy one, right? Sinful actions are shameful, sure. And like we talked about last week, there's a kind of grief There's a kind of feeling bad that leads to death, and there's a kind of grief that leads to salvation. Regret, mere regret, is different than repentance. If you want to dig into that more and you were here last week, you can find that audio on our website. But part of our problem is that sometimes, and I think often for us, our shame, so much of our shame is actually fueled by pride. Because it's out of pride that we refuse to repent, right? We remain in bondage to sin when we refuse. I don't need a Savior, and we end up remaining in bondage to our sin there. But it's also pride that keeps us in bondage to shame. Because as we mature, we become more and more aware of our own shortcomings and perfections. And we know that often we might deserve some of the scorn or some of the judgment that we are feeling And we neglect that the gospel tells us that Jesus doesn't doesn't just bear our sin, but also bears our shame so that we can be free. Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Speaking of himself, he goes, so if the son sets you free free from slavery, free from the bondage to sin, free from the position of a slave under sin. If the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. That if the Son, if the Son of Man sets you free, then you are free indeed. We can feel shame for sin, but we don't live under shame if indeed we've been freed by the Son. Christ came, yes, to convict the world, to convict you and me of sin and righteousness, and to set us free from our bondage to sin, and to set us free from our burden of shame. We don't talk about that a lot. And I think it's led us, at times, to living a joyless and powerless existence as Christians. Martin Luther has a a phrase kind of a formula, if you will, uh, that came out of the time of the Reformation, Latin phrase, simil justus et peccator. I don't speak Latin, so I'm probably butchering that, but that's generally how I understand it to be. Here's what it means. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. That from one perspective, we are indeed sinners with no righteousness of our own, Standing before God with our own self-righteousness, nothing. We're sinners. And simultaneously in Christ, we are 100% righteous. John Bloom says it like this. Uh, He's a, a 
an author, he says, the key to breaking the power of pride-fueled shame is the superior power of humility-fueled faith in the work of Christ and the promises of Christ. Shame pronounces us guilty and deficient. And again, as sinners, that is true. We are guilty and deficient. Jesus, Bloom says, pronounces us guiltless and promises that His grace will be sufficient for us in all our weaknesses as we trust Jesus as our righteousness and our provider of everything that we need. Shame will lose its power over us. We don't pretend we don't have need. We acknowledge, I am a sinner and I need righteousness that can't come from me. And that's how shame is broken. So when you and I see in the Gospels, when we reflect on Christ being mocked and beaten and treated unfairly, we recognize the terrible tragedy of His mistreatment and we embrace the reality of, He doesn't deserve that, that should actually be mine. I'm the one who should be mocked. I'm the hypocrite. I'm the one worthy of the scorn. I deserve the judgment. But, but Jesus stands in my place and endures not just personal suffering, but public shame so that I stand forgiven now and can be free of the burden. We talk about communion when we take it weekly as a remembrance of and a rehearsal of the gospel. The remembrance part is we remember what Christ suffered for us, and that's important. But I want to talk briefly about the rehearsal part. Here's part of what we mean, what I mean when we talk about communion is a rehearsal of the gospel. When you and I breathe our last breath, or when Jesus returns, hallelujah, when that happens, we will stand before a holy God, the scriptures tell us. And when we do, we will be judged either according to our own righteousness or when we stand before God, we will be judged according to Christ's righteousness. So here's how this looks. Standing before God, those who decide, I'm going to trust in myself that I'm good enough. I can do enough good things. I don't need anyone to save me. I will wear the name tag, if that's me in that moment, that says sinner, and I will have to pay for whatever sins are on my account. That's how that works. But for the one who has faith in Jesus, that Scripture says we are now hidden in Christ, the name tag, what says it across my chest as I stand before God, is no longer sinner. What's said across my chest is righteous And the debt for my sin has a stamp on it in blood that says his sins are paid in full. So when we take communion and we are rehearsing the gospel, what we're saying is, like when we read a passage like 1 John, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning our gospel rehearsal is this. We feel the conviction from the Spirit the shame of sin, if I can say it that way, and we confess it. So we're agreeing with the Holy Spirit who says, you have sin. And we go, you're right. And we own it. And by faith, we are saying in that moment, my righteousness is not enough. Jesus, be my righteousness. 
Can't do it. I can't do enough. Jesus, be my righteousness. And in that moment, we are set free from both the curse of sin, the power of it, and the weight of shame. That's what we're talking about when we talk about rehearsing the gospel. And that's what we're going to do here in a moment. So as we continue to to move toward the cross, here in our study in Luke, as we move toward the cross this morning, as we come to the communion table, let's look afresh and consider Jesus, who endures the suffering that should be ours, who is crucified for our sin, and who is shamed so that you and I can be free from the shame that we bear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We confess that probably for many of us, we do linger and live under the weight of all kinds of shame. And I thank you that in your mercy you do not leave us there, but you've given us a path out. You've given us a way out from under the weight of shame. That for those things that weigh us down, our own sins, you've called us to confess them, to stop holding them, to confess them to acknowledge our sin, to not cover our sin any longer. And we can receive not only your full forgiveness, but your cleansing, that you wash us. And if you wash us, then we are indeed clean. So I pray for us today that that some here, maybe for the first time, need to give up their own righteousness and plead with you, Jesus, to be their righteousness. Spirit, would you do that this morning? And would you remind us, those of us who maybe tend to stay in that place of shame, that there's healing to be found, that there's freedom to be found. In you, Lord Jesus. Help us to receive the, the power of your finished work. To see you in your paying for our sin, to see you in our canceling our shame that we might be more joyful and more free for your glory and for our good. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.